Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, um, <clears throat> zombies. I don't know what you think about zombies, but some of you, um, 2013, some of you may remember this. I know what our government thinks about zombies. Uh, NDP politician, the MP, Pat Martin, raised this question in the House of Commons. This is a true story, and I quote, I don't need to tell you, Mr. Speaker, that zombies don't recognize borders and that a zombie invasion in the United States can easily turn into a continent-wide pandemic if it is not contained. So on behalf of concerned Canadians everywhere, I want to ask the Minister for Foreign Affairs, is he working with his American counterparts to develop an international zombie strategy so that a zombie invasion does not turn into a zombie apocalypse? Word for word. Totally true. That was in the House of Commons. So the Minister of the Foreign Affairs at that time, the MP John Baird, this is what he told the House. This is what he said. And I quote, Canada will never be a safe haven for zombies. Aren't you thankful? (laughs) I want to assure this member and all Canadians that I am dedicated, if you picked up on the pun he used there, to ensuring that this never happens. Isn't that kind of crazy? This was just 10 years ago that, that in our House of Commons, this is something that they were talking about, uh, were zombies. And, you know, we may have some differing views on zombies. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you right now, this morning, you don't need to worry about zombies or in a, zombie, a zombie apocalypse. Not at this moment, at least. But here's the crazy thing. As we finish the book of Zechariah this morning, the reality of zombies may be out there. Just, just, just hear me out. The final chapter of Zechariah really speaks about the final chapter of this earth, which has some pretty wild stuff going on, even a description of what kind of sounds like zombies. Um, In many ways, Zechariah chapter 14, we're concluding the book today, and Zechariah chapter 14 is in many ways kind of like a one-chapter summary of the book of Revelation. So um, you can quote me on that, but I didn't find anyone else that says that, so I might be just out to lunch. But that's, as I studied, I'm like, this totally is like the book of Revelation wrapped up in one chapter. In many ways, that's kind of what happens. And it's really, it's all again wrapped up in a specific phrase that we have seen already in chapters 12 and 13, 17 times in these last three chapters. What is that phrase? Does anybody remember? That day, on that day, right? The day of the Lord, all kind of the same thing. That day, a specific day, this period of time, not, we think of a day as 24 hours. This is speaking about a day meaning a period of time. A period of time, a time, a day that encompasses a number of different things, what this, the Bible calls the tribulation period. Uh, it even encompasses the second coming of Christ. It even encompasses the establishment of Christ's kingdom here on earth. And some people wonder a little bit, you know, why, Peter, why do we need to talk about end times kind of things? 
Isn't it scary enough as it is already in the world that we're living in? You know, this is the interesting thing. Do you know that the Bible, over one quarter of the Bible is prophetic? Did you know that? A quarter of the Bible actually speaks in prophecy, predicting things that are to come. About half of those prophecies have already been fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. So, so about an eighth of the Bible was committed just towards the coming of Jesus at his first coming. Do you know that about an eighth of the Bible, the other half of those, the quarter of the Bible that's prophecy, is actually dedicated to the second coming of Christ? And so, let's be honest, if we're studying the Bible, we're going to talk about end times things, because the Bible talks about it an awful lot, an awful lot. And the other thing I would say is this, one of the reasons that we do, well, one of the reasons we talk about end times things is because we go verse by verse. I would never, ever in my wildest dreams have chosen to just preach Zechariah chapter 14. I wouldn't just, hey, I'm just going to preach Zechariah chapter 14 on a Sunday. Uh, But because we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we come across these crazy kind of chapters in the Bible. And I think one of the things that's important about talking about the end times is that we see this. We see, because of prophecy, that God is in control. We saw it with the coming of Christ, that there are so many prophecies that Jesus fulfills that it lays out so many intense details that, that, that it just says, okay, God is in control of history, but he's also in control of the future. We know he did it then. We know he'll do it again. So it gives us a, a confidence to know that God's in control. Not only that, talking about Bible prophecy is important because I believe it helps us also prepare. We need to be ready. We really should be. We should be living ready and anticipating the coming of Christ. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you this morning to open to Zechariah chapter 14. However, I know there are Bibles, and normally I'd say in the seats all around you, we're actually going to use the New Living Translation this morning. Just a little bit of a heads up. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so, of course, I don't know if any of us here speak Hebrew or Greek. I don't. So I need it translated into English so that I can understand it. And so we have various translations. The translation that we use most commonly on a Sunday morning is the English Standard Version. It's a very literal translation. And so it translates quite literally. The New Living Translation is a great translation. Uh, It's not as literal, but it helps us understand things. Sometimes it just simplifies it a little more. And so this morning, I'm going to use the New Living Translation to, to teach and to preach from. And so I do actually have all the verses on the screen for you. But you're welcome to follow along in your Bibles as well. You'll find they don't differ too much, but it just explains things a little bit easier. But why don't we pray uh, before we look at the day of the Lord that is coming. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the reliability of Scripture, that, Lord, we can trust, we can know that the things that you spoke of in the past and we could see just so laid out and come to pass, that, Lord, as you speak about the future, that we believe you're going to do the same thing again. That the, the realities will become, uh, the, the, the prophecies, I should say, will become realities. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Lord, as we look into this chapter of Scripture that kind of can be a little bit strange, perhaps, at times, Lord, that it would actually encourage us and challenge us. And, Father, that we would leave this place with, with a, a new desire for your coming, Jesus. Like the, the apostles and the disciples in the New Testament would say, Maranatha, come quickly. Lord, we invite you, come, come. We do anticipate your coming. We love you, Jesus. Teach us now, we pray. Amen. All right. The first thing we're going to see on that day is the coming king. The coming king. So chapter 14 begins. I have the the scriptures for you here now, so you can follow along on the screen. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming. 
when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, who is it that's gathering the nations to fight against Jerusalem and Israel? Who is it? It's the Lord. God's the one doing this. I'm going to gather them all. In other words, God's already saying here, he says, I'm the one that's in control of this. You might think it's out of control what's going on in the world. I'm in control. He goes on to say that the city will be taken, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity, and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. So King Jesus, he is going to come. However, immediately preceding his return, his second coming, there's going to be great devastation. There's, there's going to be great loss and suffering in specifically Jerusalem and in Israel. It's, it's, it's what we commonly call the tribulation period, the seven-year period that the Bible speaks of that will take place on earth that, that begins actually with the time of peace. About three and a half years of peace, the Bible speaks of a certain person coming on the scene named the Antichrist who will set himself up. He'll somehow figure out a way to get peace in the Middle East right, which isn't all the world concerned about that right now, figure out a way to bring peace in the Middle East, and then at the halfway mark of that tribulation period will then turn and cause the world to, to, to basically demand worship of himself, at which point it will turn into hell on earth. Hell on earth will break loose, it will be horrible, and it will culminate in this final battle that, that, that Zechariah is speaking of here, that God is inspiring him to prophetically declare that's going to happen. All these nations coming to fight against Jerusalem, this final battle. It really, in a lot of ways, it fits the idea of a Jewish day. We keep talking about that day. And you know that a Jewish day doesn't begin in the morning, does it? Does a Jewish day begin in the light? No, a Jewish day actually begins when the sun goes down. A Jewish day starts in the dark. And that's, in a sense, you could kind of think of that day in this kind of sense or this kind of term. It begins with this great darkness, this great time of darkness. But it's going to end because that's how a Jewish day finishes, in the light. That's what's going to happen. Now, I don't think we're going to be here. You can join me or not in that thought, but I personally don't think that we will be here for this time of hell on earth. The Bible speaks of, does not use the word rapture, but speaks of something that we call the rapture. Uh, In Thessalonians, it specifically talks about, and many other times in Scripture, we can see people that were raptured up to heaven, taken up to heaven. Um, You think of Enoch, you think of... um, Elijah, right? These people that were raptured up to heaven. Uh, the, the, the rapture is something that the Bible speaks about where the rapture of the church, it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. So I believe at this point we will be, which follows Jewish marriage ceremonies, we will be with the groom. The bride will meet the groom and we'll be in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what it speaks about. So I don't actually think we will be here at this time. Um, but like we saw in last chapter when we were in Zechariah chapter 13, that they're, they're about two-thirds of the Jews, it, perhaps even the whole world, will actually be killed. It's going to be an absolutely horrible time. And these armies, we're, we're told, they'll, they'll loot. They'll be counting up their loot. It'll kind of be like, kind of like a kid on Halloween. Do you remember when you used to dump out your bag on Halloween and add up your loot, right? It's like a Tootsie Roll, another Tootsie Roll, right? And you just get all these Tootsie Rolls. That's kind of what Halloween used to be for me, at least. It's like, why all the cheap candy? But, but as they'll be adding up and counting up all their loot, suddenly something's going to happen. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. So God's going to fight for Israel. And if you have read the Bible, you know that there are some pretty crazy things that God did in times past for Israel, such as even leading them out of, out of Egypt. How, what did he do? He did something with the water, the Red Sea. He 
parted. He separated the waters. He, he fought on their behalf doing incredible things. He closed those waters back over as the Egyptians tried to chase them. You, you think about some of the other crazy things that he did. Even like at one point, he, he blinds an entire army and leads them into Jerusalem, right? They're all blind. They come into Jerusalem. We, we, we're looking, we're, we're coming to kill the Jews, and there's all these blind army right in front of them, right? Like God would, hailstones. He would send hailstones from heaven that would destroy a full, complete armies or, or not allow the sun to set, keeping it up for like a full day's time so that Israel could continue in their battles. So this is what God's saying. He said, he's, I'm going to fight for Israel. I'm going to step in at this point. And so really, we think of this as the battle. We call it oftentimes the battle of Armageddon. And it's more, you should probably term it more like the unbattle of Armageddon because there's not going to be much of a battle that takes place, if we're honest. Um, here's the reality. When God fights, how many of you used to watch wrestling? Come on, be honest. Put up your hand high. If you, like, yeah, that's right, Jaden. He's, he's like, yeah, man, I watched wrestling. So did my wife. She wanted to actually move to Atlanta to be a, um, uh, what was the word? A journalist? She went, no, no, not to be a luchador. No, she, <laughs> no, my wife did not want to be a wrestler herself, a luchador. Though you may look at her now and think with all her muscles she wants to. But... Um, no, she wanted to be a journalist, and so she went, I think Atlanta, is that where like WWE was or whatever, WWF? Just stop. Okay, sorry, I'm embarrassing you. Okay. Anyway, wrestling, we were, into, we were into wrestling. The three of us in this room were really into wrestling. Do you remember in wrestling when they used to bring foreign objects into the ring? The chair. The chair, and they'd have, or they'd stuff things into their tights, and they'd pull out, you know, some like weapon or whatever, foreign objects. They would cheat, right? When it comes to the battles with God, God, he uses foreign objects all the time. He does, if you think about it. Look at the battles that he did with Israel. He used foreign objects all the time. He cheated all the time. He, he cheats with the laws of nature. He can because he's God. And so we don't have all the details here, but it will be an unbattle. It will not be much of a battle when the nations of the world gather and God stands up to fight them. Uh, in fact, other scriptures speak of him just using his word and the brightness of his coming, it even says. Um, with his breath, Thessalonians says, he will overthrow the nations, overthrow the Antichrist. Not meaning that he has bad breath. Uh, it's just meaning that the authority that he has with his word. It'll just be easy. Verse 4 goes on to describe this, what will take place. It says that on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north and half toward the south you remember in the book of Acts when Jesus ascended into heaven? We believe he ascended from the Mount of Olives. Uh, an angel shows up. Do you remember the disciples are like, he's gone, and they're looking up into heaven, and what happens? The disciples are like, what's that? These two angels show up, and what do the angels say to them? They say, hey, man of Galilee, like just as you saw him leave, what did they say? He will come back. You'll see him come back. In the same way that he left, he will come back. Which is a good reminder if, if another religious organization tries to tell you that Jesus came invisibly in, I think it's 1913, they say, um, that's not true. Because visibly he left, visibly he will return. Very clearly is what we're told. In fact, as you saw him go, he will come back. In fact, he'll even step foot in that same place. That's what we see here happening. The very place, the very spot that he lifted off will be the same spot he touches down. That's what we see here in Zechariah 14. And it will cause this great earthquake. Just a little bit of a side note here. Sometimes we get confused between the second coming of Christ and the rapture. There are two different things in Scripture. At the second coming of Christ, here in Zechariah 14, he steps foot on the Mount of Olives. In the rapture, it says that we are caught up to meet him in the air. He never steps foot on earth. That's kind of the difference between rapture and second coming. Just, just a little bit. Of... 
Anyway, he'll step foot onto the Mount of Olives, causing this crazy earthquake. Separate, it says we'll actually separate north to south and even east to west. It'll split apart. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, there was a company, quite a number of years ago, that wanted to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. They wanted to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. So they had to do all kinds of tests just to make sure that it was, you know, where they were going to put the hotel and everything would be fine. Do you know what's interesting? You know what they discovered? They discovered that a major fault line runs north-south on the Mount of Olives. Isn't that interesting? Not only that, they found that there is a hairline fault that runs east-west on the Mount of Olives. Isn't that interesting? What did we just read? When he steps foot, it's going to separate. Right? They actually did build the hotel, but they had to build the hotel much uh, further south than originally anticipated. It's actually, I have a picture for you here. It's called the Seven Arches Hotel. So if you ever go to Israel, you're welcome to stay there. It should be safe because... If you believe in the rapture, you won't be there anyway. So um, if you don't believe in the rapture, don't stay there. But anyway, I actually think the next verse goes on to speak of how we will not be around. Look at verse 5. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across to Azal. Yes, you, remember he's speaking to these Jews, this, this remnant that's in Jerusalem at the time. He says, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. So ultimately, this seismic upheaval that takes place, this, this quake, this separation, it says here that it'll create an escape route, basically, for those that were still left in the city, to get out of the city. But I want you to notice, who does God return with? What does it say at the end of verse 5? Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all his holy ones with him. Some people would say, well, that's angels. He's talking about angels. Okay, sure, we can, we can go with that. But do you know what? 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 13 tells us essentially the same thing. Speaking about the, the, the return of Christ, Paul writes this. He says that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's not angels that Paul's talking about there. Who is going to come back with Jesus when he returns? Are you a saint? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. That's me. That's you. We are going to return with Jesus when he comes. That's what this tells us. And I believe that's who it's talking about even at the end of verse 5, when God comes again with all his holy ones. You see, when Christ returns, I believe it will be with us because I believe we'll be raptured, we'll be with him up in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then he will set up his kingdom after we return with him for a thousand-year reign on the earth. So first we see the coming king, and now secondly we'll see the coming kingdom that this day will bring. Look at verse 6. On that day, so speaking of Christ's return portion of that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. So again, we don't know precisely what this is going to look like. Perhaps it'll be a little bit like Revelation 21-23, which describes the new Jerusalem. At the very end of Revelation, it describes the new Jerusalem after the millennial period, the millennial reign of Christ. And it says this, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, who's the Lamb? Jesus is its lamp. Jesus will be the light, it says. So perhaps that's what's going on here. Um, we don't know exactly. The, the millennium, here's the interesting thing. It'll kind of be like, I don't have, how many of you have ever been to like, been to Yukon or Whitehorse in the summertime? Anybody? I've never been there, but I've been told that there's like 20 to 21 hours of daylight. Like the sun never really sets. 
And in fact, I know people that lived there, and they said, oh yeah, we'll start baseball games at like 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, like activities just kind of go all, all 24 hours a day almost. Just continue. I'm like, when do you sleep? I don't know. You don't really sleep so much. You just kind of, I don't know if the sun just gives you more energy. I have no idea. But it's, it, it appears like that's what it'll probably be like. There'll be, there'll be, one of the characteristics will be that there's no more darkness during the millennial reign of Christ here on this earth. But there's more. He goes on to say this, verse 8. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. This is interesting because Jerusalem and Israel, they've never really had um, a, a very reliable water source. It's always been very strained. In fact, if you think about the world today, do you know that about, about one in four people in the world today do not have access to safe or clean, drink, clean drinking water? That's right now, here in the world right now. Well, guess what else was discovered when that company wanted to build their Seven Arches Hotel and they did their testings? They discovered that there is a massive amount of water that would break through if a quake were severe enough. Isn't that interesting? Maybe a quake such as verse 4 kind of spoke about, like the actual Mount of Olives even splitting from north to south. You see, the, the reality is this. In Christ's kingdom, he talks about here, there'll be an abundance. There'll be a provision, an abundance, specifically of water. Never ending, it says, stretching even from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean. Uh, some commentators actually point out, they say that we think that perhaps in the, in the millennial reign of Christ, that they'll actually be, uh, Jerusalem will become a port city. That's what they kind of think. I mean, if you know it now, it's landlocked, obviously, Jerusalem, but uh, flowing right to the Mediterranean. But most importantly, look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. God will rule over all of the earth, over Jew, over Gentile. All of the earth will worship God alone. There'll be no other gods. There'll be no other governments. There'll be one righteous king to rule the whole earth. Won't that be great? Continues in verse 10. All the land from Geba, north of Judah to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become one vast plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place and will be inhabited all the way from the Benjamin gate over to the site of the old gate, then to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. You know, what's interesting is that other passages that speak about, um, the, 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 that basically describe Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ, describe it as being much larger, that it has to be bigger because of the, uh, the population, the amount of people that will reside in the city during the reign of Christ here on earth. And, and so it'll have to accommodate huge amounts of people. And so some people wonder perhaps if maybe during this quake, because it talks here about everything being made level and plain, that perhaps during that time, um, the area surrounding it will be leveled out and Jerusalem will be raised up. We don't really know. The thing being here is that the descriptions that we get here really, and really even in other parts of the Bible, really describe kind of some really cataclysmic events that are going to take place, that are going to set some things up. Think about this. There's this crazy earthquake, the sun and moon ceasing to give their light. There's a new light source. There's, there's new waterways. Mountains turned into plains. Does anybody know how this is going to happen? Me neither. I have no idea. In fact, I think verse 7 said it really well. I love it how Zechariah just said, only the Lord knows how this could happen. I don't know either. Like a lot of us are like, we, don't, we, we can see things that would lend itself to that, but we don't know, aside from that God is God and he can make it happen. And then in verse 11, we read this. And Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. 
Beautiful. Safe at last. Never again to be cursed and destroyed. It's interesting because a number of, um, a number of commentators actually think that verses 1 and 2 uh, especially today, a lot of people are actually teaching this, that verses 1 and 2, along with like Matthew 24, were already fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when Rome came and destroyed. They'd say, well, those were fulfilled. Matthew 24 was fulfilled then. Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, that was all fulfilled then. The interesting thing is this, and they would say, you know, and you could see how there could be a case for it. Jesus, you know, or here God, God speaks about all the nations being gathered against Jerusalem. You'd say, well, that was only Rome that took, um, took out Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. But some would say, yes, but at the same time, when Rome conquered, they were kind of the ruling nation of the world at that time. In a sense, when they conquered a nation, those nations joined Rome. They became Roman. And so when they destroyed Jerusalem, it was kind of like all the nations were attacking. The crazy thing, I, I don't agree with that because, um, number one, verse three or four it is, talks about God stepping in, which there was actually a number of rabbis that, that took this chapter and believed, oh, as in AD 70, God's going to step in any time. This is what was prophesied. Did God step in in AD 70? No, the temple was completely destroyed. It was overturned, and the Jews were thrown out of that city, that nation. Not only that, but when we get to verse 11, it says that Jerusalem will be filled after these events and safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. I think this is very clear. You know, 16 times in, 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 in this city's history, the city of Jerusalem has been fought over. It's been destroyed twice. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked 52 times. And it's been captured and recaptured 44 times. I don't believe that this verse has been fulfilled yet. I don't believe this prophecy has been fulfilled yet. I believe this is still yet to come. It is definitely not living safe at last, is it, in Jerusalem right now? Unless God is a liar, and he's not, this scripture is still yet to be fulfilled. And so we see with that day, we see, we see the coming king, and then we see the coming kingdom, but thirdly, we see that that day will also bring consequences. There'll be consequences that come on that day. So kind of going now back to this kind of great battle of the nations that, that all come against Jerusalem, look at verse 12. And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. So these nations that attack Jerusalem, God says, I, I, I'm going to send a plague. And there is going to be uh, three forms that's going to take place, or three punishments, I should say. There'll be one, one, is, one of those punishments will be a plague, then there'll be a panic, and then there'll be a plunder. That's what we're going to see here. Verse 12 continues with the plague, the first thing. It says this, read this closely. Their people will become like walking corpses. Their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. How many of you have ever thought that's not one of the ways that I want to go? What does that sound like to you? That sounds like a zombie. That completely sounds like a zombie. I mean, does it not make you kind of think? Personally, I, I've, you know what? As I read more and as I live longer and see more that, that Hollywood can produce, I kind of wonder if we are not being desensitized to things that the Bible teaches us are still yet to come. I mean, how many zombie movies are there nowadays? You know, I mean, something like that takes place. People be like, ah, oh, yeah, that's just, I've seen that in the movies before. To the point that even our governments are putting in legislation, I don't think Canada actually did, but the states did, about zombies. And if there were to be a zombie apocalypse and what would take place and not, like, I think we're being a little bit desensitized. Even if, even if I, I think about this as well. 
If there were something, okay, so if you believe in the rapture, I believe in the rapture, if the rapture were to take place and a whole bunch of people in the world disappear, has there been a movie recently that kind of spoke about that or spoke to that? Anybody know what movie that was? How many of you seen some of the Marvel movies? Have any of you seen the movie Endgame? Isn't that what it was called, I think, Endgame? Isn't that where, like, basically half the world disappears? Huh, interesting. Do you see this? I don't know if this is just a tactic of the enemy or what, or is this is just weird Peter in his head. But I think we're being desensitized in many ways that Hollywood is just kind of making, normalizing all these things. You've seen how it's worked. I mean, you've seen how it's, it's become normalized just through media anyway to live like the world, that it's just normal that you just do these things and you live this way that, that everybody just practices this. It's just the normal things. So, whether, so things that God would say, no, that's not normal. The, the Hollywood just says, oh, it's totally normal. It's totally normal to, to live like this and to do these kinds of things. I actually have, I actually have a picture um, of what these zombie people may look like. <laughs> so isn't that freaky? That's horrible. Um, that actually was after the fall fair. Um, I'm embarrassing my wife again probably, but uh, at the fall fair, some of you were at the fall fair, we had the face painting, and the kids, I let some of the kids paint my face. Um, and then Brandon Ferguson, I don't know if Brandon's here, I, I, I saw Bella, but I don't see Brandon. Um, Brandon, so they did a good job, I'll just say that. The kids actually did a pretty good job. I think I looked like a cat, and then Brandon made me into like some weird-looking clown thing. And I had to drop Connor off after the fall fair and had to go into town. And so I went into the bathroom up here, and I'm like, this stuff ain't coming off. And so that was the end result of me trying to get cleaned up. And um, anyway... You know, some scholars think that this may be from radiation, that this will cause these people to kind of have these effects of what seems to be like zombie stuff. Some thinks it could be like from an atomic bomb or a neutron bomb. Um, I, I love what one, one person writes about in Colossians 1.17. I think this is a great possibility. It tells us this in Colossians 1.17, that in Jesus, all things hold together. Think about that. All he would have to do is just say, I no longer am going to hold you together. And the atoms, the very atoms of their body could begin to dissolve, right? Just fall apart. Do we understand that everything we look at is being by the grace of God held together right now? Creation, the universe, you and me. Regardless, I think the point is this. Is there any chance ever in fighting against God? Is there any point? No. <laughs> Don't do it. So there's a plague, he says. That'll be one of the punishments. There'll also be panic. Look at verse 13. On that day, they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will fight their neighbors hand to hand. So God will confuse these attacking armies, as he did so many times in Israel's past. Um, think about like, um, I think it was, it was Gideon, right, where he smashes the clay jars. I think it's Gideon, when he, the Midianites. And, and it's like, I'm pretty sure it was that time, where there was like 300 Israelites, and they go against the, the armies of Midian, and they're all camped below, and then they just, at night, they have, they've got these clay jars that they smash. And what does the army end up doing? They turn on each other, thinking, it's, it's Israel. They turn on each other, and they, the Midianites end up attacking and killing each other. Um, this, is, this is essentially what's going to happen. They'll panic, and they'll begin to fight themselves. Their troops will die, not just from this plague, but, but from friendly fire is what's going to happen. And then verse 14 tells us of the plunder. It says, Judah too will be fighting at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the neighboring nations will be captured. Great quantities of gold and silver and fine clothing. So these armies that we read in verse 2 had looted Jerusalem, right? They'll now turn all their loot back over, right? And in fact, even the loot of their nations will be turned over. And so the plundered, the plundered Jerusalem will now become the plundee, if that's a word. 
It is now. Verse 15, this same plague, so that of the rotting flesh, will strike the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and all other animals in the enemy camps. I have another picture of what this may look like for you this morning. So, <laughs> so the, the lesson here is simply this. There are consequences to fighting God. Uh, and listen, he has mercy. <laughs> Stop laughing, Mike. <laughs> he has mercy for us now. But there's consequences. You think about this. We may be resisting God. We may be fighting against God. I'm thankful that he has mercy. He has mercy for me because I resist him from time to time too. And he's got mercy for us. But the day is coming when he's saying, I won't have mercy anymore. And I will fight back. I will. Verse 16, In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survive the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. So those that are still alive, we're told, that, that kind of go through this period of this, this, this battle and this horrible time on earth, um, they will worship God. There'll be one God, that's it. And they'll begin to worship God. In fact, they'll also specifically celebrate this one feast. Interesting, because the, all, of all the feasts of Israel, at this point, this will be the only feast that will have not yet been fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? And this feast, the Feast of um, Shelters, it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It's all the same feast. It was a fall feast, and, and this specific feast was for Israel to always remember their exodus, their wilderness wanderings from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so what they would do is they would camp out in booths or tents or shelters, right, to remember, to remember God's provision. It was also a feast that was always to happen in the fall with the gathering in of the harvest. Another interesting point about this feast was that it, um, and so it speaks really about the provision of God in the millennial reign. That's one thing it speaks about. But also that this feast, this fall feast, was the only feast of the feasts of Israel that the Gentiles were invited to participate in. Isn't that interesting? A lot of commentators believe that, that it points to the fact that this feast pictures one day the ingathering of Jew and Gentile, all nations, into the kingdom of God. When God would, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, when he tabernacles amongst us, dwells with us. And that's really what this picture is here. And so these remaining people will repop, that, that, that come through this tribulation period will repopulate the earth that Jesus rules and reigns over during the millennium. However, there are consequences for those that don't worship God. Look at verse 17. Any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, will have no reign. If the people of Egypt refuse to attend the festival, the Lord will punish them with the same plague that he sends on the other nations who refuse to go. Egypt and the other nations will all be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of shelters. God's kind of like, listen, you don't like, you don't like the God who gives the rain? That's fine, then you don't get the rain, right? Pretty simple. That's kind of what he's saying here. And Egypt, you might wonder, why is Egypt specifically mentioned? Because for Egypt, um, the Nile River is not actually that dependent upon the rains, and so God's saying, listen, even Egypt won't be exempt. Though they may think that they're, they're good, they're, they're, they're all good, they'll have no issues, they will too. There will be consequences. What is a little bit strange here is that, um, I don't know how, how maybe you've thought, maybe you've never even thought about the millennial reign of Christ. But perhaps as you've thought about end times and the millennial reign when Christ returns, do you not think about basically it's going to be a time of peace and prosperity? right? That's what the Bible speaks about. Even if you read the book of Revelation, it says that Satan will be locked away, the beast will be locked away for this thousand-year time period. So how could there be anything 
bad that could, like, how would there be nations that don't want to worship God? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. For the most part, there will be peace and prosperity. But here's what we need to remember. The way the Bible describes, this is how I believe it works out. The way the Bible describes these end times is that through this tribulation period, there will be people that are still alive and survive, right? That's what the Bible speaks about. Um, I believe that we will be raptured. The church, the body of Christ, will be taken up, meet Jesus in the air. But during the tribulation period, there will be people that actually go through, that survive and enter from the tribulation period into the millennial reign of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, we, on the other hand, if we are raptured to meet Jesus in the air, what happens to us? Paul writes about this. He says that we will meet him in the air, but something specific. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about that our body, that which is perishable, will be sown imperishable. We will now have, the Bible's clear about this, and how many of you are thankful for this, a glorified body, like the resurrected body of Christ. Here's the thing. We are caught up. Our body is transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We are transformed. We are made to be like Christ in that sense. We no longer have the flesh. Thank the Lord. Those people, though, that come from the tribulation period into the millennial reign of Christ and that, are not, that were not Christians beforehand will still have their flesh. Does that make sense? They will not be raptured up. They will not be transformed. And so there, one commentator, Damon Duck is his name. He says this, It must be remembered that those who survive the tribulation period to live on into the millennium will still be in their original body and will still have a sin nature. Also, many will parent children with a sin nature. Early on in the millennium, people will remember the tribulation period and desire to worship and obey the Lord. After a few hundred years, however, the remembrance of things will wear off and new generations will not have the personal experience that the older generation had. Some will stop making an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. This is how he will deal with it. Does that make sense? I hope that kind of makes some sense. You know, I'll be honest, I was always confused about kind of what these things would look like and transpire. And this is what he's saying. Listen, there's going to be people that come through because I'd be like, wait a minute, if if I've been raptured, how would I ever turn my back? Because at the end of the thousand-year reign, you know that the Bible speaks about Satan being let out again to deceive for a time, right? It's like, what's going on here? I'll be deceived? No, I don't want to be deceived. And it's like, no, we won't. We will not have that sin nature anymore. It'll be gone. We'll have a glorified body. But for those that came through the millennium, they will still have to make a choice to decide whether they want to live for God or not. That's, that's how that kind of plays out. And there will be consequences. There's consequences in that day for those that choose not to worship God. And don't be mistaken, there are still consequences even today. It won't just be in that day. There's consequences today if we do not choose to worship God. The consequences then he speaks about is this, basically a lack of provision, the lack of rain, the holding off of the rain. You know, I have to wonder if for our own lives even right now, though, if some of the consequences that perhaps when we choose not to worship God, if you can look at it towards in the way of disobedience. Listen, I believe, I believe 110% that Jesus has saved us. He's paid the price for our lives, that my, my, my faith is built on him alone. It's not anything that I do. But we sometimes wonder, where does my obedience play into things then? I believe what my obedience does is that my obedience in worshiping God with my whole life positions me for the blessings. The blessings of God aren't earned by me, but my obedience perhaps positions me. It's like his blessing is right here. It's pouring out. His blessings are being poured out. 
And, and, and it's, his blessings are because of what Jesus did. It's not because of what I do. But when I disobey, I remove myself from where the blessings are being poured out. And when I walk in obedience, when I walk in worship unto the Lord, it's like I position myself for his blessings to be poured into my life. Does that make sense? There are consequences even now today, I believe, for, for choosing to worship God or not. I want to choose to walk in those blessings. Well, finally, we see this. On that day, the common will be made holy. Look at verse 20. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day, there will, be no longer, sorry, there will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. In that day, this millennial reign of Christ on earth, it, he's, it says basically this, even the common things, the most common things, the bells on horses, the pots and the pans that we use for everyday cooking, he says will be holy to the Lord. They'll all be holy unto the Lord, which is interesting because only the high priest ever had this, they wore a, a special hat, headband that had an inscription on it that said, holy to the Lord, and only the high priest was to be the one wearing this headband, but not anymore. Do you notice this? It says that all things will, will have that inscription of holy to the Lord. All things will be set apart for God, for his purposes, for his glory. There'll no longer be a distinction between the, the secular and the sacred or the common and the holy. Think about it, a bowl for cereal or a pot for stew, right? There'll be such a, a love and a, re, a reverence for God, such an understanding that it's all from him and it's all for him, right? There'll be no separation. It's all for his glory. You know, the truth is we don't have to wait for that day though. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see, God wants everything in our lives now to have written on it, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Holy just simply means set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. And I'd ask you this question, is everything in your life set apart for the Lord? Or do you have one life that you live for God and, and another life that you live for yourself? What about your, what about your stuff? What about your car? It, does it have inscribed on it, maybe you should take your keys at the end of the service and just key it in the side, holy to the Lord? Don't do that. You don't need to do that. It should be inscribed on our hearts, our home, our wallets. What about those? Right? Is it inscribed on those things? Holy to the Lord, set apart for God's use. I think it's good that we would even ask ourselves, Lord, what is it? What is it that I need to maybe turn over to you in my life right now to be holy to you? What is it? Maybe the Lord needs to speak to you this morning. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your TV. Maybe it's your phone. I don't know what it is, but what is it that needs to be turned over to be holy to the Lord? As we close the book of Zechariah this morning, you know, it's no mistake that God closes off this book with this, this picture into the future. You know, there may be a lot of disagreements on the details of, of how things are going to transpire. Is there a rapture? Is there not a rapture? Tribulation? All these things. A lot, there, I'll be honest, there's a lot of disagreements. There is one area that the entire church does not disagree on, and that is the fact that Jesus is coming again. If you're a follower of Christ, every Christian believes this. Jesus is coming again. And what is our role? Our role is simply what verse 1 told us to do. What was the very first word of verse 1? Do you remember? Even before that, the very first word, before he even said on that day, 
Behold is what the ESV says, or watch. 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 Behold. Look. You know, even Jesus in Matthew 25, 13, after he taught about his second coming, he told us the same thing. He said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I think it's a good question that we need to be asking ourselves this morning. Are we watching? Are we ready? You know, it's interesting that the book of Zechariah, it began with a call to repentance. The the third verse of the, the book began this way, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And how does the book end? The book ends with a vision of this holy nation that has returned to him. Do you see that? And this glorious kingdom that he has established. And I believe, I believe, church, the same call is going out this morning. God says it once again, return to me and I will return to you. You know, truly, this is the only way to really be prepared for his coming. There's only one way to watch, to be ready, to be prepared. And that's, that's to be giving our lives to return to him. Give our lives over to him. Come to Jesus. And whether it's your first time, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Whether it's your thousandth time, I want you to return to Jesus because he promises this to you. If you return to me, I will return to you. As the worship team comes up to close us off with a song this morning, I just, I just ask that we would respond with that, that, that we would allow the Lord to, to be the one that reigns in our life, that we would return to him, to his ways, to his truth. And so even just now as they prepare, can we just prepare our hearts to respond to Jesus? Lord, we... We thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for, we thank you that, Lord, though it can be confusing at times, this world that we live in, you are still in control. You are still on your throne. And we give you praise. And I pray right now, Jesus, that you would help us to see just in our own lives, Lord, if there's areas that we are not ready for your return, if we are not ready for your coming, Lord, would you just reveal that? We don't need to dig deep. We don't need to, 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 to really search and search. Lord, we believe your Holy Spirit will reveal right now what it is, where in our lives that maybe we have not allowed certain areas to be set apart to you. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will return. We look forward to the day when you will reign on this earth because we truly know, God, that all these other governments and leaders, there, there is corruption through and through. And our hope is not in our government. Our hope is in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we look to you, I pray, God, just right now that you be speaking to us, Lord. If there's those in this room that this morning need to return, whether it be the first time that they turn to you, Jesus, or like I said, whether it be a thousandth time that they need to return to you, I thank you for the promise that you say, I will return to you. And so this morning, if you're joining us here, whether online or just in the building this morning, and you... You want to give your life to Jesus. You want to say, I want to be a person. I don't understand how this all sorts out or, or shakes down in the end, but I want to be somebody that is ready, that is watching, that is ready for the return of Jesus in my life. If you're not ready, if you don't know Jesus, that means you're not ready. And if you want to know Jesus today, you can. And so if there's anybody here this morning, you just want to put up your hand. I would love to pray for you. If you're joining us online, maybe just put it in the chat or send me an email. I would love to pray for you just in closing. Don't want to point you out or embarrass you, but just that you would have an assurance that you are watching, that you are ready. Is there anybody this morning that would say that? I'm going to put my faith and my hope in Jesus now and forevermore. Maybe you're here this morning and, and the Lord's speaking to you about areas in your life that you need to turn over to him more fully.
that you need to return to him, that maybe certain areas have been given over but not others. I just, I just pray right now that you would just allow him to speak, allow him to work, allow him to, to reveal and to expose those areas. God, just show me even in my life where it is that I'm holding on to that is not inscribed on it wholly to the Lord. Come and reign, Jesus. Reign over my life. Reign over all that we have, all that we are. And Lord, as we conclude with this song, may you speak to us. Show us, God, where those areas may be. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.